We're in a mini-series on the tribulation, but this isn't uh, the one that we're going to do that's going to work through all the details of the seven trumpet judgments and the, and the vile judgments and the bowl judgments, all those kind of things, and, it's, and then there'll also be another one that will de deal with um, rapture timing issues and the various uh, uh, schools of thought on that. But this is really about the implications of the, of the tribulation and uh, it, it really leads to a lot of implications about tribulation in general. And so we dealt first with the question of why, do, why won't God just forego the tribulation altogether and end history before it gets so catastrophic since he knows how horrible the world's going to get. Why doesn't he just end it uh, much earlier than that before the tribulation? And then in Thursology 56, or excuse me, 55, we dealt with the problem of pain asking the question, how can a loving, all-powerful God allow suffering? And then last week, we dealt with an even stickier question, which is that kind of a subset of that, which is why does God allow the innocent to suffer? So you might wonder why we're spending so much time on the biblical issues related to suffering. And the answer is because God is able to use pain that came from humanity's rebellion for the purpose of helping him save his world. So God didn't bring pain into the world. In fact, it was his perfect will that humanity would remain in Eden to enjoy a flawless, unbroken relationship with him eternally. Eden was supposed to last forever. That was the plan. But even though God didn't create evil and suffering or death, he can use these things that came from sin. And amazingly, he can cause things to work together for good for those who will follow his redemptive work in helping him set things right in their own life and in the life of others. And so this issue of tribulation in general and specifically really focusing from how horrible it's going to get and how uh, painful the world is getting and will get is what's gotten us into this mini-series. So uh, we've been answering each of the difficult questions about suffering by understanding the biblical perspective of God's redemptive plan. However, even though we're able to meaningfully respond to the questions, the answers themselves create attention. That's what's interesting, right? You, you go on, you answer one of the questions, but that creates tension. And the tension is related to God's character. And here it is. Since God is all-powerful and God is all-goodness, this means that he could simply end the suffering anytime he wants to. <clears throat> he has all power. He could do that if he wanted to. Boom! Suffering gone. And in addition... <clears throat> we know that Scripture has already told us that he is going to end all suffering. So it's not as if God's going to let this go on forever, for some reason. He's already told us that in the end, he's going to end suffering. It is coming. He's going, he can do it, and he's going to do it. In fact, that's one of the great doctrines of the historic Christian faith. So let's bring up an obvious question. Here's your first blanks. Right in the answer, since the Lord is returning, right? That's one of the huge, in all of the creeds, the Lord is returning. And since his ultimate plan is to come back to this world to conquer evil and eliminate pain. So that's on the plan. He's going to conquer evil and he's going to eliminate pain. It's in the plan. Then why doesn't he just come back now? Why not now? In other words, since there's a day coming when all wickedness, abuse, treachery, violence, and hatred will be overcome and abolished, why isn't that day today? Since God can destroy evil and suffering, and since God will destroy evil and suffering, 
What in the world is he waiting for? Furthermore, the scripture is filled with passages that tell us that we should constantly anticipate his return. We've spent a lot of time in that whole mini-series on date setting. Anticipate his, his return, anticipate it, yearn for it, right? We're told we should yearn for the day when he'll set everything right. We're supposed to look earnestly forward to the coming day of the Lord when he'll stamp out injustice and conquer evil and deliver the outcast and save the oppressed. We're supposed to cry out for the day when all hatred and all evil will be overthrown and abolished. In fact, the Bible ends with the Apostle John imploring the Lord with these words that ring through the ages. You probably know them well, right? Almost the last verse in the Bible. Even so, Lord, come quickly. It sure sounds like the Apostle John wanted the Lord to return on the very day that he wrote those words in 97 AD. And so, the tension between the existence of so much suffering and the promise of Christ's return begs a question. Lord, why don't you come back now to conquer evil, to stamp out suffering, to eliminate oppression, and to set everything right? Lord... Why don't you come back today? Why don't you come back right now? And tonight, in response, I want to see how the word answers the question of why King Jesus hasn't returned yet. So to begin, I want to remind us of the powerful biblical picture that's coming at the end of the age. I'd like to spend a few moments on the concept of the day of the Lord. All the way through the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's an overarching theme that history is headed in one direction. By the way, the astrophysicists now show, tell us that it's impossible to be any other way. Pretty amazing. It's not cyclical as the Eastern religions believe. In biblical thought, time is linear. Time is irreversible. And it's moving inexorably from a beginning to an absolutely unavoidable end. And in the biblical text, the end... The end is frequently given the name, the day of the Lord. You see it in Ezekiel, you see it in Jeremiah, you see it in many of the prophets, many of the minor uh, prophets. You see it in Peter's writings, you see it in Paul's writings, the day of the Lord. And in Hebrew, the word day can mean daytime, like the light part of a day. It can mean a single 24-hour day, or it can mean an age. So one way to understand the day of the Lord is by realizing that it's comprised actually of several different events that occur on different days, different individual days. In the final consummation of the age, there's a series of events, all of which are called individually the day of the Lord and collectively the day of the Lord. The prophets describe multiple events that will occur during this era or this age of the day of the Lord. And so you've got this uh, in your notes. And, um, and notice here, uh, here's the present. And at some point in the future, the peace treaty will be signed. That will start the seven years of tribulation. Um, and then Jesus, the, the, you know, we've spent a lot of time on the, at the midpoint. And then the second half is the great tribulation. Everything really comes apart. Jesus comes back at the second coming. He wins the Arm uh, Battle of Armageddon, and you go right from 19 into chapter 20 of Revelation. Again, this is just the, the flow. The reason why I'm pre-millennial, Christ comes before the millennium, is because that's exactly how Revelation flows. And 
seven times in chapter 20, it says, and Jesus will reign on the earth for a thousand years. And so you get this thousand year reign. And at the end of that thousand years, Jesus uh, allows Satan to be released. And amazingly enough, the nations, after having this incredible king, Jesus, for a thousand years, where he's wiped out poverty and all of the things that we use as excuses for why, why we do bad things, etc. He wipes all that out. And at the end, guess what? The nations still choose Satan, even after they've seen the perfect king. And this is when the earth and the universe, the elements will melt with fervent heat. This is when the fire comes. So notice that the battle of Armageddon, time doesn't end as we know it. At the battle of Armageddon, Jesus defeats the armies that come against him, those that have taken the 666, but he saves all those who haven't, who have survived through the tribulation, haven't taken the mark. Uh, he saves all of those at the end. And then you have a thousand years on the earth, but it, Jesus makes it nearly perfect by his perfect kingship and government. Um, this amazing time of peace, and then the fire falls, and then that's when you see the new heaven and the new earth, uh, and we go into eternity. And notice the prophets would sometimes talk about, there's, there, for instance, there, there may be an event during one of the bold judgments where there is. A third of the people on the earth die. That certainly sounds like the day of the Lord, right? And it is. It's described. And then the second coming is called the day of the Lord. And when the fire comes, it's called the day of the Lord. So the reality is, is this entire 1,007-year time period is collectively called the day. And remember, in the Hebrew, we'd really be thinking of this as the age, but the day, the yom of the Lord. So don't get confused when sometimes you'll hear the second coming talked of as this event is the day of the Lord, or when the fire falls at the end and Jesus melts the universe with a fervent heat and creates the new heaven and, uh, and new earth. That's the day of the Lord. It's, it's, it is the day of the Lord. But really, collectively, all of this is the day of the Lord judgment, the day of the Lord campaign by the Lord to, do, to fulfill all of his promises to Israel and all of his promises to the earth during this last final age or day of the Lord. So let me give a couple of examples of, pa of uh, passages uh, that show us some of the events that will take place during the day of the Lord. It's in your notes here, Second Thessalonians chapter 1 for... After all, it is only just for God to repay the, with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven. So notice how this has started. We'll come back to this. And now it goes straight into a classic day of the Lord passage. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now look again at the beginning of that paragraph in verse 6. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted. That's going to happen in the day of the Lord. So look what will happen when Jesus comes in power and great glory. Here's your blanks. In the day of the Lord, God will repay all oppressors. 
So those who have lorded it over, those who are in great power, those who have misused their power uh, and, and stamped on the marginalized and the, and the poor and the, those with no power and no voice, all of that. So the, the God will repay all oppressors and in the day of the Lord, here's your second set, God will give relief to the afflicted. So notice this is a good news, bad news. It's really good news that Jesus is coming back in the day of the Lord for those who are oppressed and afflicted and following him and loving him and being and trying to help bring in goodness and so forth to the earth rather than being uh, evil and perpetrating pain and suffering on others. But it's bad news for those who are the oppressors. He's coming in awesome power. And now let's look at one more day of the Lord passage. Again, we could use literally dozens from the Old Testament, but uh, tonight just a couple from the New Testament. Look at from 2 Peter chapter 3 here. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat, and the earth and its works will be burned up. By the way, here's a good example of some might say, well, is that a second coming passage? No, that's actually not a second coming passage. But it is a day of the Lord passage, because remember, the day of the Lord begins at the beginning of the, the age of the Lord, if you will, at the beginning of the seven years, and goes all the way until the end of the millennium when the universe melts with a fervent heat. So 2 Peter 3 is specifically about this event. So the big day of the Lord, this is the last event in the day of the Lord, and that's why it starts that way. So look now at verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God. Notice this recurrent concept, the day of God, the day of the Lord, the day of Jesus Christ, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So we see that the day of the Lord will lead into a, a cataclysmic destruction of the fallen evil world. It will be destroyed by fire. That's when the new heaven and the new earth are created and eternity begins. But at the end, something else will happen, something quite remarkable. Here's your blank. In the day of the Lord, God will make all things new and make wrong things right. Look at verse 13 again. So you've had this catastrophic nuclear meltdown of the universe that's happened, right? And look now in verse 13, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So look at your blanks again. In the day of the Lord, God will make all things new and make wrong things right. So now we're ready to take these simple truths about the day of the Lord and unpack the answers to tonight's main question. And here it is, again. Since the Lord is returning, and since his ultimate plan is to come back to this world to conquer evil and eliminate pain, then why doesn't he just come back now? And we're going to answer this question in tonight's application. So as you can see, we're going to spend a lot of time applying tonight in answer to that. Why not today, Lord? Is it not bad enough? Have there, are there not enough starving children, 25,000 a day starving? The human trafficking, maybe a million children and women being trafficked all over the world, maybe a million of them. Lord, is it not bad enough? Why not today? And here's the application. 
Here's your blanks. Within the reasons why the Lord hasn't returned yet, we find the exposure of our ignorance and a great challenge to our inward-looking perspective. Let me say that again. Within the reasons why the Lord hasn't returned yet, we find the exposure of our ignorance and a great challenge to our inward-looking perspective. As you look around the world today, it's really easy to say, I can hardly wait for Jesus to come back in his day of the Lord wrath and blow away all the horrible people who are so destructive and so wicked and so hateful and hurting so many. But even in our better days, when we're not thinking about judgment and punishment of those who cause so much horrible suffering in the world, I believe it's reasonable to ask the question, why doesn't Jesus come back today? <laughs> and there are at least four reasons that come right out of Scripture. So here's our first. Reason number one. Now this is a really tough concept. You're going to have to put on your, your thinking hat, hat here because this is really deep philosophy. Are you ready? Reason number one, God actually has a plan. <laughs> so I have to stop and make fun of myself here. I'm amazed how many times I've asked God, why haven't you done this? And why haven't you done that? And how come you haven't fixed this situation? And why haven't you done that? Lord, why haven't you fixed all this stuff? You haven't resolved the problems. Why? Why haven't you done this? And the answer to me always through the word is this. I put it kind of as I think of it. Dan, hello, can't you get this through your thick skull? God speaking, I'm perfect and I'm sovereign and I'm all-knowing and I'm all-wise and I actually have a plan. Look at the scripture. So it clearly affirms these concepts about our God. Look from Psalm 19. What a beautiful scripture. The law of the Lord is perfect. Isn't that amazing? Remember, that's the instructions, the way of the Lord. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. So God is flawless. God is perfect. And now look at the sovereignty of this perfect God. We heard in Psalms his perfection. Now listen to his sovereignty from Isaiah 46. It's in your notes. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, listen to this, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things which have not yet been done yet, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Truly have I spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have, notice this, <laughs> reason number one, I have planned it. I will surely do it. And now, look at this perfect sovereign from Psalms, right, 19, his perfection from Isaiah 46, his incredible power and sovereignty. And now look at this perfect Sovereign God's perfect sovereign plan from Acts 17. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to everyone that all people everywhere should repent because, listen to this, 
Now we're hearing about the day of the Lord. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, Jesus, of course, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all humanity by raising him from the dead. So think about those three passages. You may want to go back tonight at bedtime and just read back through those and ponder the awesome scope and breadth and magnificence of these passages. Our God is amazing. So let's look at the three precepts that flow from these three passages. Ready? Precept number one, God is perfect and his ways are perfect. Number one, God is perfect and his ways are perfect. Number two, God's plans are perfect. I have planned it and it will happen. And number three, precept number three, God's timing is perfect. So here's the foundational concept. Since God is perfect and his ways are perfect and his plans are perfect and his timing is perfect, here's your blanks, the reason Christ hasn't returned is because, now pay attention, it's not time yet. This is so foundational and this I have to be retaught so many times when I'm complaining to God about the world or whatever. Listen to it again. Since God is perfect, his ways are perfect, his plans are perfect, and his timing is perfect, the reason Christ hasn't returned yet is because it's not time yet. So why doesn't God why does God delay? Reason number 2, here's your blank. God isn't done saving people yet. Now to be sure, there's a day coming when God's long suffering will give way to his final righteous judgment. If you're not a believer or if you're a believer who's out of step with God and you know it right now and the spirit is convicting you, get it right because there is do not be deceived. There is a day when it will be boom and God's going to say final judgment is it's time. Look again at 2 Peter chapter 3, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. But remember reason number two, God isn't done saving yet. You see, as true as this is about the sure coming judgment, listen to God's attitude about it. Look to what he thinks about this judgment that's coming. Look at the verse right before what we just read. Verse nine, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing, not wishing, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That is right before the day of the Lord passage. So why? Why is God so slow? Why is God so slow about returning in his great and terrible day of the Lord wrath? Why? Here's your blanks. Listen, it boggles my mind. Why is the Lord waiting to come back and set things right? Because today on planet earth, get this right. There are 10,000 converts per hour coming to Christ. I want you to let that soak in. If the missiologists are right and they believe this may be conservative in its number, right now on planet earth, there are 10,000 converts per hour coming to Christ. Do you realize that when we woke up this morning, there were a quarter of a million more followers of Jesus in the world than there were when we woke up yesterday morning? 
There is a worldwide revival going on right now in numbers that have never been experienced in all of human history. The greatest revival in history is going on right now. As enormous as the human birth rate is, and it's enormous, but as enormous as the human birth rate is, it's nothing compared to the new birth rate. You ready for this? Write it in. Here's the new birth rate. The number of disciples is growing three and a half times faster than the world's population. Glory to God. He is saving his world, friends. So why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Because God isn't done saving people yet. Number three, why does God delay? Reason number three, because Jesus wants us to show as much grace, excuse me, Jesus wants to show as much grace to others as he showed to us. One thing that's important to do when we're thinking about theology and doctrine as we are is to look at the implications of our beliefs at a personal level and not just our own personal level. But at our own personal level, I want us to to, to think about this question. Let me ask this. You ready? It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, here's your blanks. An important personal question for all of us. What if Jesus had come back before I was saved? What if Jesus had come back before I was saved? Wow. Aren't you glad he didn't come back then? Aren't you glad he delayed for us? Aren't you glad that we received his long-suffering rather than his day of the Lord wrath? Yes, sometimes God has to judge. Sometimes he has to punish. And he will come back in the great day of the Lord as judge. It is coming. But at his essence, God is not judge. At his essence, he is redeemer. He is savior. So as he waits, as he waits, not wishing that any would perish, he wishes, he waits because he wants all to come to repentance. He wants the whole world to be saved. So, why does God delay? Reason number four, and here it gets pretty painful. <laughs> We're talking, is this a mini-series kind of on suffering? <laughs> this makes me suffer. Ready? Here you go. Reason number four. I may not be read, as ready as I think I am. Listen, church. I may not be as ready as I think I am for him to come in righteous judgment. Pause. Read the words that you just wrote. I may not be as ready as I think I am for him to come in righteous judgment. One of the things that occurs to me about myself is this. When I ask God why he hasn't come back to set everything right yet, I'm making the assumption that I'm ready. I'm making the assumption that his judgment would be for all of those people out there who aren't following him. I'm making the assumption that his, it would be for the evil, for the wicked, for the those people out there, that's right, it's the, it's the time for those sinners to get what's coming to them. Well, it turns out that God's people have been thinking this way for a long time. But before we ask God to bring his day of the Lord wrath down on others, 
we need to pay attention to a painful warning that comes from the prophet Amos. Turn with me to Amos. And so if, once you get to the right of the major prophets that end with Ezekiel Daniel, you get Hosea Joel Amos. So it's a third of the minor prophets, or it's nine to the left of Matthew, uh, because they're small books, you can get there quickly that way too. So be turning to Amos. And, and Amos gave this incredible warning to God's people at a time when Israel was being oppressed by the Assyrian Empire. And notice something, this is important. The Assyrians were evil. They were horrible. They were vicious. They were brutal. They were doing horrible things to innocent, to children, to the women. It was a horrendous time. And uh, now comes the prophet Amos in this time. Think about what Israel is. Oppressed, brutalized by the Assyrian Empire. And watch what happens in Amos chapter 5, verse 18. It's the start of a new paragraph there. Look, look there with me. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord. Look how that starts. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord. I told you, day of the Lord is all through the Bible. This incredible time when God will set everything right. I'll ask you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. What? This is to the Israelites. This is, he's supposed to be saying this to the, to the Assyrians. But look at this. It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home and leans his hand on the wall and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? Hmm. <laughs> Listen to what God now says about their fake religion, their religious acts without true obedience from the heart. Verse 21, I hate, I reject your festivals, nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me up to, uh, up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them and I will not look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an everlasting stream. What a surprise. The prophet completely turned the tables on them in this stunning announcement. This is supposed to be for somebody else, this day of the Lord wrath that's coming, this awesome day to take care of all of them. Look at verse 18 again. Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light. Here were God's children longing for the day of the Lord to come. They looked around at the evil Assyrians and were saying, come on, God, give those Assyrians what coming to them. But what they didn't realize was that the day of the Lord judgment, if it came on the earth when they were asking for it, they would be destroyed too. Let that sink in. But you might think that this is just an Old Testament problem. Maybe this was because of Israel thinking of themselves as God's chosen people. But surely this would have been cleared up when Jesus came along and was preaching the gospel of grace to all people. But it turns out that God's people have always had a tendency to think this way. I want us now to move forward seven centuries to a time when Jesus had been with the disciples for over three years. He was traveling to Jerusalem and they were going through Samaria. The background to this event is important. 
You may be aware that the Samaritans came from the tribes of Israel that had rejected David's kingly line, and they went off during the divided kingdom. There was the northern ten tribes. But Judah, and Judah really and Benjamin, but Judah was so much bigger, it's usually just called Judah. Um, they stayed true to the Davidic dynasty, and thus they were called Jews after Judah. And so the Jews considered themselves the pure, the pure people of God. And basically, even though Samaritans were descendants of the northern ten tribes of Israel, the Jews re uh, really treated them as if they were illegitimate. In fact, they actually called the Samaritans dogs. And now with that background, turn with me to Luke, Luke chapter 9, Luke the gospel chapter 9, uh, and we're ready to look at a really telling event that happened with the disciples. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. Look with me, a new paragraph there. And it came about when the days were approaching for his ascension, that he resolutely set his face to go up to Jerusalem. And he, was, and he sent messengers on ahead of them, and they went and, and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. And they did not receive him because he was journeying with his face toward Jerusalem. And, verse 54, what a verse. And when his disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? So despite all the time that they had spent with Jesus, James and John wanted to call down fire on the Samaritans. But unfortunately, this attitude didn't go away after James and John. In fact, as you look around the American church, there's still a whole lot of this attitude out there. We so easily join in the call for the fire to fall on those sinners out there. We so easily join the disciples in saying, come on, Jesus, blow them away. So here's a sad historical tendency, write it in. This, this happens so often among God's chosen people. A sad historical tendency, here's your blanks, in complete blindness, in complete blindness to the amazing grace that we have received. God's people often relish, often relish the prophecies about the destruction of the wicked. But look at the striking contrast in Jesus' attitude. Look at verse 54 again. And when the disciples James and John saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command the fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and said, you do not know what spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Isn't Jesus amazing? Think of the setting. Here's the creator of the universe being disrespected and rejected by the Samaritans. And yet, he had an absolutely unwavering mission. Here's your blanks, write it in. Here's his absolutely unwavering mission. While this is all too easy for while it's all too easy for believers to focus on the wicked getting their just punishment, because it is just getting their just punishment. Jesus is always, while we focus on that, Jesus is always focused on their salvation. Think about that. While it's all too easy for believers to focus on the wicked getting their just punishment, Jesus is always focused on their salvation. Oh, how his ways are higher than ours. It's ever a tendency to find ourselves looking around at a lost world and saying, you may be having your heyday now, but just you wait, you're going to get what's coming to you. And if your heart has been purified from that, praise the Lord. 
But as you look around the church, there is just a lot of that around the American church today. So if we take a step back and look honestly at the disciples and ourselves, it's not difficult to identify what a lousy attitude this is. But if that's all we learn from Jesus' rebuke in this story, then we're missing something way deeper than just an attitude issue. It's really important to identify something else. It's a key concept, so write it in. Here's your blank. The disciples' bad attitude was actually a reflection of a profound blindness about their own spiritual state. Now pay attention. They missed a huge implication of why Jesus didn't give the Samaritans what was coming to them. And to understand what they were missing, it's important for us to look at one of, another one of Jesus' parables. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 13, Matthew the first gospel. Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, verse 24. Matthew 13, verse 24, it's a new paragraph there. He presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men were, his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprang up and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. And the slaves of the landowner said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, look at this, no, otherwise, while you are gathering up the tares, you may root up the wheat with them. Verse 30, allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, notice that fullness of time. In the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them up and gather the wheat into my barn. So now we're ready to connect the theology of this parable to the blindness of James and John. When you let it soak in, it's actually horrifying. Look at the disciples' cluelessness. Here's your blanks. When they were calling for the destruction of the Samaritans, when they were calling for the destruction of the Samaritans, they were unknowingly calling for their own destruction. They were saying, yank out the tares, get rid of them and burn them up. But they didn't realize that if the king uprooted the tares, he would have destroyed the wheat as well. Look at the blindness of God's people. It's easy to assume that the coming judgment of God will be for, will be for, well, all those sinners out there. But we've seen how the passage in Amos and the event with the disciples in Samaria are so telling. Here were God's children longing for the day of the Lord to come. They looked around and said, come on, God, give those pagans what's coming to them. Bring it on. But what they didn't realize was in the day of the Lord judgment, if it came when they were calling for it, they would have been destroyed as well. It has probably occurred to all of us how gracious it is that God is still tarrying for the unsaved. But has it occurred to us that he's also tarrying, waiting, delaying for us? Think of this. Think of what these passages reveal about us. Are you ready? We're not ready either. 
The Israelites at the time of Amos weren't ready. James and John, so close to Jesus, part of his inner circle, they weren't ready yet. They were calling for fire that would have destroyed themselves. So, until the fullness of time comes, neither believers nor unbelievers are ready in the ultimate sense. That's why God's timing is perfect. And now we've brought together the scriptural truths to be able to understand a whole series of key concepts. You ready? Key concept number one. Here's your blanks. God isn't done saving the unsaved yet. That makes perfect sense. That occurs to all of us, right? God isn't done saving the unsaved yet, but he's also not done saving the saved either. Don't miss that. But how could this be? How could this be? This is important. The scripture teaches that God has predestined every human to become conformed to the image of Christ. If you look at the predestination passages, it's always about him predestining us to be holy, to be like Jesus, to be transformed, to be changed, so that we walk like Christ in the power of the Spirit. And this leads us to key concept number two. Here's your blank. One of God's purposes in delaying Christ's return is to give us time to be more fully conformed to the image of Christ. Let me say it again. One of God's purposes in delaying Christ's return is to give us time to be more fully conformed to the image of Christ. Think of this. This concept flows directly from the biblical precept that until God's perfectly chosen day, he won't be done with his plan to conform us. Listen, church, to conform us more fully to the image of his son. So not only is he not done saving the lost, folks, he's not done saving us. Let me ask, are you viewing every day, every moment like that? Lord, what do you want to change in me? Not what can you do about all of them out there, but Lord, what do you want to do in me? How do you want to more prepare me for the day of the Lord that may come in our generation? Now, you may be thinking of the many of the scriptures that say we're supposed to be ready at all times for his return. We're to be alert. We're to be dressed in readiness. How do these two concepts square with each other? How can it be that we're commanded to always be ready when we're still not ready? And we see this dilemma resolved in key concept number three. You ready? A major attitude of being ready for Jesus to come back is a Christ-like humility that recognizes that it's only by grace that we will ever be truly ready for his return. Let me say that again. A major attribute of being ready for Jesus to come back is a Christ-like humility that recognizes that it's only by grace that we will ever be truly ready for his return. See, more grace needs to soak into our hearts, more clarity of how far I fall below what I should be and how much I'm not yet like Jesus, not fully conformed. All of that, that just sheer humility of, Lord, thank you for giving me another day. Will you make me more like you today so I'll be more ready tomorrow than I am today? And this is true no matter how long we've walked with Jesus and no matter how much we've grown in Christ-likeness. This attitude of, Lord, you're not done with me yet. You have so much to do. I'm so unaware of so many things that you want to change and transform. So now, 
Let's recall Jesus' response to James and John when they asked if he wanted them to call fire down on the Samaritans. But he turned and he rebuked them and he said, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. Notice one more thing. This gives us key concept number four. Here's your blanks. The very fact that they even asked the question of whether they should call down fire on other people exposed the reality that they weren't ready for the fire to fall themselves. Again, the very fact that they even asked the question or whether, of whether they should call down fire on other people exposed the reality that they weren't ready for the fire to fall themselves. Before we end tonight, there's one more thing that we need to learn from the disciples' horrible attitude about the Samaritans. It's a wake-up call for believers. Here's your blanks. I'm not ready for Jesus to come back until I fully recognize that it's only grace that will prevent my destruction when the fire finally falls. Look what you just wrote down. It's our wake-up call. I'm not ready for Jesus to come back until I fully recognize that it's only grace that will prevent my destruction when he, the fire finally falls. And this is, no, this is true no matter how long we've walked with God. So, the next time you find yourself thinking, <laughs> what we really need around here is a good flood, like Noah's flood, stop and remember that one of the main reasons Jesus hasn't come back yet isn't just because there are so many lost and wicked people, but it's because he's not done yet with me. As we close, I want to end with some questions. From tonight's perspective, from these key concepts, from this perspective, are you ready for Jesus to come back? Has it become natural for you to humble yourself before God in awe of how much mercy and grace he's shown to you? Have you allowed the master to do the things in your heart that he's been wanting to do? Or is it easier to look at others and point out the things that need to change in them? If we're there, then we're with the Israelites that Amos slammed. And we are with James and John who Jesus slammed if we are spending our time saying, Lord, get them, they deserve punishment. Oh Lord, help us. It's time for us to be looking inside. It's true that every generation of the church is supposed to be yearning for the return of the mighty one of Israel. But every generation is also supposed to be humbly focusing on the myriad of people around us who desperately need Jesus. And rather than spending any energy asking whether they deserve the coming judgment, we should be allowing God to conform us, to conform us more fully to the image of Christ. And if we let him do this, we'll change from having James and John's perspective about lost people to having Jesus' perspective. So, now that we've seen the reasons why Jesus hasn't returned yet, may the Lord give us the insight and the humility to see his plan to save the world in a completely new light. Let's pray. Lord, 
oh my. I, uh, I just am, we're so humbled before your word. We realize how when we think about these, your second coming and your return and Armageddon and all of these armies, we tend to think very, uh, really kind of theoretically. Uh, but every one of those people are going to be people. They're all going to be people for whom you died. And they are all people that right now, if we're in that generation, you're trying to save. You're trying to use us to help you save them. So Lord, may we look around us with that light, at our neighbors, at our co-workers, at our fellow students, wherever we are, Lord, at our family, even at our enemies, realizing that you don't want anyone to perish, but you want all to come to repentance. And may we yearn for the day when everyone around us knows you so that everyone around us will know you at your great and mighty coming. Thank you, Lord, for the power of your spirit to convict us through your word. Lord, may you do things that change us. May you do the work because, Lord, we can't. And we ask you to change our hearts. May we truly in humility look on everyone around us as someone whom you adore and are desperate to save. We love you, Lord. Amen.